Welcome to Lou Palumbo's Between the Lines. Problem solving for our future. Lou. Common sense, logic, and reasoning. Lou. The man that can't stand hate and animus. Lou. Stimulating the thought process of America. Lou. Where being right is not political, it's factual. Lou. Providing real solutions in real time. And now, here's your host, Lou Palumbo. As always, there are an abundance of issues that are nagging this country. Some of them domestic, some of them international or foreign. Cannot overstate the importance of continuously having a discussion regarding what is transpiring at the borders and how it will ultimately translate to the security of this nation. I do want to remind everyone, as I always do on a weekly basis, about Phantom Rescue. It's an organization that is headed by Frank Smith and Tony Sparks. It targets sex trafficking, which seems to be a topic that does not, I would say, glean enough attention on many aspects, the media and the government. Um, Before we get rolling today, I do want to just remind everyone about our two sponsors, Buzzsprout and Instacart. They are very user-friendly. We use Buzzsprout on this production. Instacart is something I happen to use at home and have been very pleased with. I would encourage you to give it a whirl. It's very user-friendly. Both of these are. You're able to develop um, on on an app on your phone. And we're going to talk more about them later. I do want to mention today the gentleman we have with us, a rather distinguished individual by the name of Ryan Haas. He is a senior fellow and the Michael H. Armcost Chair in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. From 2013 to 2017, Haas served as the Director for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the National Security Council staff. In that role, he advised President Obama and other senior White House officials on all aspects of U.S. policy towards Taiwan and China. He coordinated and implemented U.S. policy towards this region among U.S. government departments and agencies. Haas is the author of Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. Hello, Ryan Haas. Thank you for joining us today. You have a rather intriguing background um, I gather you could probably talk to us for hours about what's taking place with foreign policy in this region of the world. I, I might even tap into you to dis- ask your opinion of the Ukraine because I think somehow it intersects with China today. But with that being said, I want to make this really user-friendly for the listening audience and our viewers. And I want to ask you, what is this preoccupation that China has with Taiwan? What's driving this? Well, Lou, first of all, it's wonderful to be with you. It's a, it's a great question. The, the issue with Taiwan is an unresolved artifact of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang in the period around World War II uh, fought to gain control over China. The Chinese Communist Party prevailed on the mainland, pushed the Kuomintang to Taiwan, and vowed to do what was necessary to eventually reunify Taiwan with the mainland to have a unified whole China, uh, much as it was during previous dynasties prior to to their collapse in China. And so for China's leaders, this is sort of the the missing link in the Holy Grail. Uh, They want to, to burnish their credentials to show that they are capable of bringing the whole of China underneath the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And they've been frustrated for the past 70 years by their inability to do so. So let me ask you this, Ryan, if I may, uh, in, in as simple a terms as I can put it, what does Taiwan bring to the table? Well, Taiwan is at the center of global value chains. They produce uh, the most cutting-edge semiconductor chips in the world. Uh, they're our ninth largest trading partner in the world. And they're a flourishing democracy in a pretty tough, uh, tough neighborhood. So uh, that's their value proposition. Uh, and beyond that, there's just sort of a, a deep affinity and friendship between the people of Taiwan and the United States um, that, uh, that brings both sides together. Interesting. So you just laid out a little bit of, of why the United States has an attachment when you start to make reference to chips and other things. Um, so, so let me ask you this, if I may. Um, do you think that China is going to seize on this potential opportunity to invade Taiwan or overtake Taiwan because of what's going on in another region of the world known as the Ukraine and Russia? 
Well, there are a lot of people who are worried about this. Uh, I'm less worried than others that uh, there's any imminent signs of, of conflict in the Taiwan Strait uh, for a couple of reasons. The, the first is that China has uh, a, a very intense political calendar this year. Uh, they're looking for stability as they prepare for their party congress this fall, which is where they will select their next slate of leaders. And, and just about everyone expects that Xi Jinping will stay on for another term as, as leader of China. Um, but beyond that, uh, the Chinese continue to tell their people that time and momentum are on their side, that uh, trends are working in their favor, that uh, China is gaining in relative advantage and strength, and that uh, as time goes by, uh, the gravitational pull of the mainland will, will grow stronger. And uh, and eventually Taiwan will be uh, will be welcomed into the embrace of of the Chinese leadership, and so that presents a bit of an alibi uh, for continuing with the current course. Um, and the the other factor is that uh, you know Joe Biden doesn't appear to be looking for a fight uh, with China over Taiwan right now. Taiwan's leader uh, Tsai Ing-wen has declared that uh, she wants to be stable, predictable, and steady in how she handles these issues. So. They're not really looking to back Beijing into a corner and force it to act. Um, and, and so if Beijing were to you know, commence military activity against Taiwan, uh, it would be through their own initiation, not in reaction to anything that occurred. I want to ask you this, Ryan, if I may. And this is um, factually driven, this response, I suspect, and also uh, opinion driven. Have we over-empowered China, um, not just this country, but in a global sense, have have we made this mistake, and is it a mistake? Well, we have a tendency, you know, looking back at American history, to really inflate uh, countries that we perceive as threats to us. Uh, we we sort of we we build them up to be ten foot tall giants that can see the future and leap mountains. We did this uh, with the Soviet Union after the launch of Sputnik. We sort of seem to be repeating this pattern uh, again right now with China. China has immense strengths, and they are our foremost competitor, uh, but they also have real vulnerabilities. And I think that it's important for us to be able to take stock of both their strengths and their weaknesses side by side in order to frame a full picture. Interestingly enough, I'd like you to speak to some of the vulnerabilities. They have uh, worsening demographics. Uh, Their country is going to look like Japan does today in the next 20 or 30 years. They have mounting debt piling up uh, in pockets of Chinese society. They have uh, more inequality uh, in China than there is in the United States. The Gini coefficient is higher, despite the fact that China professes to be a socialist country. Uh, And they're having a hard time generating productivity. Uh, uh, Total factor productivity has been pretty flat for the past decade. Part of this is because uh, China isn't uh, very efficient in its allocation of capital inside of China. Uh, a lot of money goes to state-owned enterprises. Uh, it's harder for, for private companies to, to attract capital. And so uh, China has some significant headwinds. They also have uh, you know, issues with ethnic unrest in, in certain parts of the country. Uh, and they have a dependence upon the rest of the world for food, fuel, and semiconductor chips, which are real vulnerabilities for them. That's interesting. You know, my perception, Ryan, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that we started this romance in the Nixon administration with Henry Kissinger. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. Nixon and Kissinger, 50 years ago this week, uh, traveled to China to, to try to pull China away from the Soviet Union and to create a path that would allow us to, to leave Vietnam. Interesting. You know, it seems like we've we've contributed to making them a capitalist society and and oddly enough it almost seems like it's come back to bite us you know our our dependency and this is my perception so i want you to correct me but our dependency upon china is a bit too vast in too many areas for my taste i mean we're at the point where you almost can't pick up a commodity in this country and probably globally i can't speak to what goes on in other countries because i'm not hanging out there looking at product labels but here i know we almost can't touch anything that doesn't have made in china in it we do have made in Taiwan issue uh, products also, I'm noticing, but is that accurate as well? It is. It is, Lou. I mean, uh, it's very, as you said, it's very difficult to walk through a market and find something that doesn't uh, have a made in China label attached to it. That, I think that that's beginning to shift a little bit as uh, low wage products uh, begin to be made in Southeast Asia and South Asia. The, the reality is that uh, wages in China are beginning to go up and their, uh, their comparative advantage is being sort of the factory of the world is beginning to, to be eroded. 
That's interesting. That's an interesting statement. Guys, we're going to take a quick break. We have with us today Ryan Haas. The young man is brilliant. His understanding of the nuances of the relationship between the United States, China, Taiwan, and that region of the world is quite intriguing. Stick with us. We're going to come right back with Ryan. If you're a podcaster, I can't say enough good things about Buzzsprout. That is how we distribute our show. And to learn more about them, go to ourbetweenthelines.tv. I do want to explain one thing about Buzzsprout. Very user-friendly. And as you know, we incorporated ourselves. So if you're inclined to create your own uh, podcast and you want some real good support mechanism, we would tell you entertain Buzzsprout. They're very, very good. And as I said, we use them. Instacart. Another interesting concept, you can go to your favorite grocery stores, sign on to their application without leaving your home, the comfort of your home, just pick out the items you'd like, they'll assign a personal shopper for you and deliver them to the point that you would like them delivered to. Another great concept, very user-friendly, and I'll be honest, we use it also, it's very effective, and they're very, very good, they're very uh, on point. If you're looking for peace of mind, look no further than Global Elite for your safety. Global Elite Security Force is made up of active and former law enforcement agents. Their force has worked at the federal, state, and local level. They are dedicated to providing the most professional personal security and investigative services available in the private sector. With offices nationwide and globally, this footprint gives Global Elite the ability to coordinate protection and security anywhere in the world. Think of Global Elite Protection Services for special events, dignitaries, high-profile net worth individuals, and the entertainment industry security services. Offering drones, weapons detection, shot sporting, chem bio detection, executive protection surveillance, dignitary protection, threat assessment, private investigation, and cyber security. They are the experts in intelligence and private protection services. Go to globalelite.us.com. That's globalelite.us.com to engage global elite. Have you ever thought about doing your own podcast and found the process confusing and overwhelming? Well, let Studio Podcast Suites of Jacksonville make it easy for you. They have everything you need to record, produce, and distribute a professional-sounding podcast. Studio Podcast Suites is Jacksonville's only five-star rated professional podcast studio rental and podcast service company. Studio Podcast Suites provides two clean and comfortable state-of-the-art recording suites for both audio and video podcast recording. They offer a complete menu of podcast services, including editing, podcast art, hosting, video, consulting, and more. Studio Podcast Suites. Jacksonville's premier professional podcast studio recording and podcast service company. Book your studio today at studiopodcastsuites.com. That's studiopodcastsuites, S-U-I-T-E-S dot com. Studio Podcast Suites. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. We have a, a very special guest with us today, and I say special because of his knowledge and insight into this country called China that I think um, in the United States, we're trying to wrap our arms around what that really translates to because we hear a lot of various references made to this country, whether it's the products we consume, human rights issues, which I'm going to get into Ryan with in a second. Um, But I do want to remind everyone, uh, Ryan is the author of Stronger, is the name of the book, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. So now I want to ask you specifically, Mr. Haas, explain what this interdependence translates to. Well, Lou, thanks for mentioning my book. That the interdependence is the the simple, uncomfortable reality that the United States and China are tied together in so many ways. We have over five hundred billion dollars in trade. Two ways, uh, there's over four hundred billion dollars of products sold by American companies operating in China, selling into the China market. China is one of the leading growth drivers for global economic growth in the world, and American companies increasingly are finding them as a a place to generate revenue. But beyond the economics, uh, the United States and China find themselves 
bound together for good or ill uh, by how each other responds to different events, whether it's climate change, COVID-19, nuclear nonproliferation. We're both affected uh, by each other's actions, whether we like each other or not. So that's, that's the idea of the interdependence, which sort of rests alongside the competition, which is much more uh, visible and, and tangible to us today. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to ask you this question, and this is a very important question. Is there a way to draw China closer to us, Ryan? In other words, we listen to and watch at times protests regarding China and its treatment of its people. We listen to um, these human rights violations. I mean, how do we go about navigating this country and trying to get them westernized? I want to tell you something you're going to find interesting. Um, I protected cabinet members of the Chinese government. One in particular was the Minister of Culture. And my take on them was a rather interesting one. Their preoccupation when they came here, perceptively, the optic for me was they were trying to become westernized. I took them to museums in the city. I took them to the Javits Center. Um, We did eat in China Fun every afternoon for lunch, which really was quite interesting. And I have to tell you, they were gracious, polite, respectful. They loved our guys. You know, all of my, uh, all the people that were involved in the security detail we're current and former law enforcement agents, so we really know what we're doing as far as protecting you. And I had one gentleman that actually uh, was fl- fluent, read, write, and speak Chinese. I- ironically, and this has nothing to do with anything, my nephew can read and write Chinese. He was an exchange student in Sweden. He's the lawyer in the family also. But how, how do we draw them in? In other words, we're listening to the rhetoric today predicated on what's going on in the Ukraine and this alliance we allude to between Russia and China, almost as if they're trying to, like, gang up or, or, or collaborate with a, a, an approach to the United States, be it favorable, unfavorable, which I'll let you speak to, how do we draw them in? How do we get them back on track? Because they are the consumer, and correct me if I'm wrong, the largest consumer of steel in the world. Is that is that accurate? That is. And so that they're is. building like the hammers of hell. Am I correct, Ryan? <laughs> Well, Lou, uh, your your experience with the uh, Chinese officials is fascinating, and it it echoes the experiences that I've had with them as well. I think that they would prefer uh, to be recognized as a great global power, to have their system of government and their economic model legitimized, and to be treated with dignity and respect on the world stage. That that's what they would prefer, all things being equal. Uh, the more that uh, they find that the path to achieving those goals is being obstructed, uh, the easier it is going to be for them to find the path to Moscow uh, as sort of a counterbalance and a hedge against what they feel like is uh, efforts by the United States and the West to block or obstruct their rise. The reality is that the United States is still the most consequential, powerful country in the world. We still have the largest economy in the world. We can still do immense damage and destruction uh, when we really put our minds to things. And, uh, China would prefer not to have a adversarial or antagonistic relationship with the United States. Um, the, the question for them is, is that possible? And uh, I think that there are many people in the United States who, who feel like, you know, China doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt because they've demonstrated through their actions and their rhetoric and their treatment of their own people that, uh, that they are hostile, uh, hostile to us, hostile to their own people, hostile to the idea of, uh, of universal rights and values. Uh, and so the hell with it. Right. Um, but the, the question that we need to ask ourselves, I think, is what type of relationship with China best allows us to meet our own interests and requirements to our people? Because as I think about it, Lou, you know, government's job is to protect our people, to create opportunities for prosperity and to protect the, the health uh, uh, of the population. If, if that is the, the baseline requirement of government to its people, then I think that having a somewhat functional relationship with China, even as we're going to disagree passionately on a lot of issues, uh, serves our interest. And so um, that sort of brings us back to the question that you're asking is how do we get there? Uh, and you know, if it were left to me, I would prefer for uh, us to, to, to do more and say less. Uh, in in how we're approaching this relationship. Right now, we sort of are on the opposite side of that equation. We're talking a lot. We're talking loudly. We're condemning China uh, for its behavior, and it's you know they they merit condemnation through their actions. So I, I'm not 
quibbling with that, but just sort of the fundamental question of what's the most effective way to push China in the direction that we seek? And and this is a topic that, you know, there is no right or wrong answer to. We're all wrestling with it as we yeah, go You know, forward. Ryan, let me ask you this, buddy, though. Wouldn't it be helpful if we um, engaged in a campaign to educate them as to the importance of optic? In other words, you know, we we understand in this country, for example, and I suspect that this is global, you know, what the optic is of China. And at times it lends itself to brutality, um, you know, uh, human rights violations. You know, you know, there's got to be a way to engage with them in dialogue to help them understand that changing the optic of that country will ultimately translate to a fiduciary issue, you know. And, right. and I, I want to ask you another thing. You mentioned this about... Uh, they are not recognized, and you mentioned in a number of facets. Uh, I'm struggling to understand that concept because China's on the tip of everybody's tongue almost every day. Is that not accurate? No, they they are certainly commanding plenty of attention in, uh, around the world uh, through their actions. Is it the right attention, though, is the question, you see? And I think that's where the, the problem lies. Um, I, I want to ask you about former President Trump because he had a rather interesting style of governing. Um, I would say, and I don't say this um, in a con- less than constructive manner, sometimes there's a need. He was like a bull in a china shop, and I think rather in- imposing or over-insinuating and threatening even. Is that something that played to be of some form of value in dealing with China? And I know I don't want to drag you down into North Korea with Kim Jong-un or any other country, but I want to stay with China. How did, how did he go over with China? Well, he, um, I think that he, he shook things up with, with China, right? Which elaborate. is probably healthy. I need you to elaborate what that yeah, means, I shaking will. things he, up. He, he, he shook things up. There, there was a, a bipartisan playbook that, uh, that, you know, suggested for over 40 years that the United States should find some balance between cooperation and competition with China to, to manage our way forward. And he sort of tore that playbook up, threw it out and said, you know what, we're starting over, we're doing things differently. And uh, so he, he opened up an, an enormous amount of space for new creative thinking on how to deal with this challenge posed by China. Um, the, the Achilles heel of his approach, though, was that a lot of what he did, he did alone. Uh, the United States alone, sort of one-on-one dealing with China, when China, you know, is affected much more when it feels like uh, it is China against the Western world or China against the world for its actions. Uh, they feel a lot more pressure um, than they would in the case of a a one-on-one competition. And uh, you know, Trump, President Trump, made. Uh, ambitious targets. He, he sort of narrowed the focus of the relationship down to trade issues and made very clear what he wanted from China in terms of trade. And unfortunately, uh, it played out exactly as those of us who have dealt with China or studied China for a long time would have predicted, that the Chinese would tell President Trump, okay, sure, we'll buy $200 billion more goods from the United States than what we promised. And that will become apparent uh, a year after you have left office. In other words, they they got themselves the Chinese got themselves off the hook by promising to buy a lot of things and then events intervened and they did not and so we ended up um, putting a pretty significant tax on you and me uh, with the additional tariffs which raised the cost of uh, purchasing all the products that we were talking about earlier in in the in in the stores from China without really uh, addressing any of the underlying economic issues that were aggravating tensions in the relationship or sort of expanding wealth uh, from China to the United States. So uh, it, was, it was a novel effort. Uh, it was a new approach. Uh, we sort of ran the experiment. We've learned from it. And uh, I think that the Biden administration is in the process of trying to course correct somewhat to bring our allies and partners along with us uh, for dealing with some of the challenges that President Trump identified in Chinese behavior. It sounds like um, we need to employ that tactic that we so handily employ in uh, actions of hostility, create a coalition perhaps, but for a more positive means in this instance, uh, based on what you're, you're alluding to as to China's sensitivities. Interesting. And, I, and obviously... Uh, President Trump, um, I would say, chased this trade deficit pretty strongly. Let me ask you something: uh, how, how did this gigantic trade sef- deficit, you know, develop, for lack of uh, better term? And how did this happen? How did this disproportionate trade deficit 
come to be? Well, it came to be because uh, China produces things that we want to buy at a lower price than we do at home. Uh, and China is willing to take the money that it earns from selling us the goods that we want to buy from them at lower cost and plowing them in the U.S. treasuries to keep interest rates low and uh, the economy humming in the United States. Very interesting equation. Um, you know, so so um, in reference to the trade deficit and, and the reliance or dependency for products to be developed there, and I hate to bring this word up because it's a word that we just gloss over in this country about our unions. It's factual that the manner in which unions operated within our own country was the nexus to us becoming dependent upon China for the production of goods. And if I hear you correctly, Ryan, you're saying that as wages go up, it's going to be that much less attractive to send things there because, you know, they're going to be paying more money. Maybe at some point... Uh, and I and I do want to credit uh, President Trump with this, despite his lack of demeanor at times. He was encouraging us to reestablish manufacturing in the United States. So, so give me the correlation or the relationship between union activity or the manner in which they conducted business here, and this empowerment of China in the production of goods because it it didn't happen. It wasn't like this fifty years ago. Am I right, Ryan? You're right. Uh, you know, part of the Part of the story, Lou, is that China brought online uh, 1.3 million hardworking people, 1.3 billion hardworking people into the global workforce uh, with its entry into the World Trade Organization and its its participation in the global economy. And so now we have, uh, unlike 50 years ago, we have 1.3 billion Chinese people that we're competing against, uh, whereas before they were you know, locked behind uh, the, the communist bloc. Very interesting. Um, you know, we're going to go to a quick break, ladies and gentlemen, and we'll be right back. We have a, a highly informed individual, Ryan Haas, recently wrote a book. Um, if you could get that back on the screen for me, Captain Producer, Adapting, it's called Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. It sounds like something that most of us need to read so we understand a little bit more in a comprehensive manner the relationship between this country and China. And it sounds like there might be light at the end of the tunnel here, depending on how our elected officials navigate this country. We're going to be right back, guys. If you're a podcaster, I can't say enough good things about Buzzsprout. That is how we distribute our show. And to learn more about them, go to ourbetweenthelines.tv. I do want to explain one thing about Buzzsprout. Very user-friendly. And as you know, we incorporated ourselves. So if you're inclined to create your own uh, podcast and you want some real good support mechanism, we would tell you entertain Buzzsprout. They're very, very good. And as I said, we use them. Instacart, another interesting concept. You can go to your favorite grocery stores, sign on to their application without leaving your home comfort of your home just pick out the items you'd like they'll assign a personal shopper for you and deliver them to the point that you would like them delivered to another great concept very user-friendly and i'll be honest we use it also it's very effective and they're very very good they're very uh, on point If you're looking for peace of mind, look no further than Global Elite for your safety. Global Elite Security Force is made up of active and former law enforcement agents. Their force has worked at the federal, state, and local level. They are dedicated to providing the most professional personal security and investigative services available in the private sector. With offices nationwide and globally, this footprint gives Global Elite the ability to coordinate protection and security anywhere in the world. Think of Global Elite Protection Services for special events, dignitaries, high-profile net worth individuals, and the entertainment industry security services, offering drones, weapons detection, shot sporting, chem bio detection, executive protection surveillance, dignitary protection, threat assessment, private investigation, and cyber security. They are the experts in intelligence and private protection services. Go to globalelite.us.com. That's globalelite.us.com to engage global elite. Have you ever thought about doing your own podcast and found the process confusing and overwhelming? Well, let Studio Podcast Suites of Jacksonville make it easy for you. 
They have everything you need to record, produce, and distribute a professional-sounding podcast. Studio Podcast Suites is Jacksonville's only five-star rated professional podcast studio rental and podcast service company. Studio Podcast Suites provides two clean and comfortable state-of-the-art recording suites for both audio and video podcast recording. They offer a complete menu of podcast services, including editing, podcast art, hosting, video, consulting, and more. Studio Podcast Suites. Jacksonville's premier professional podcast studio recording and podcast service company. Book your studio today at studiopodcastsuites.com. That's studiopodcastsuites, S-U-I-T-E-S dot com. Studio Podcast Suites. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. We have with us today Ryan Haas. I cannot even begin to tell you how much insight this young man has into China's re- the relationship with China, Taiwan, and some other countries in that region. I do want to ask you something, Ryan, and, and I would be happy to go through this, but I think you could do it in a more expeditious fashion. Give us a little bit of, of a comprehensive look into your background and how you became interested in particular. And I do, before we go down this road, do you happen to know a gentleman by the name of Mike Spiesback? Does that name ring a bell? No. Okay. He did, did, did a lot of work over there, and he was instrumental in, in bringing me clients from China. But, you know, if you just tell us how you became interested and give us a little bit of insight as to how comprehensive your background is. Well, Lou, I grew up in uh, the northwest corner of the country in a small town called Bellingham, Washington, and uh, went to the University of Washington. You know, Seattle is a is a Pacific-facing city, and uh, the there was sort of a clear recognition as I was growing up that China was going to be the story of the future for the 21st century. And I wanted to, to play a role in, in that relationship. And so I, I joined the State Department of Foreign Service as a diplomat and uh, over time had an opportunity to work on Taiwan issues and then uh, spend four years in Embassy Beijing from 2008 to 2012. I, I left Beijing, came back to Washington and ended up having an opportunity to serve as President Obama's director for for China, Taiwan, and Mongolia at the National Security Council, where I worked from from 2013 to the start of 2017. Interesting. I, I want to ask you another very important question that I think um, Americans are concerned about, especially with what we're witnessing over in the Ukraine with this military buildup by um, by Russia. Um, how advanced are the Chinese in reality with their military? Because we're hearing about these new generation of missiles that are undetectable and I know they have some pretty elaborate bombers and things of that nation. Can, can you give us a little further insight on this, Ryan? Yeah, I think the Chinese are uh, developing military capabilities at a faster pace than any other country in the world right now. Uh, it should be of concern to us. It should command our attention. Uh, they are um, building uh, nuclear capabilities at a rapid rate and also the ability to deliver those nuclear warheads by land, by air, or by sea. And so they they deserve our attention. Um, I would just note, though, Lou, that uh, China's capabilities are are highly concentrated in the Western Pacific, uh, and their capacity to project power sort of fades the further you get away from China. But that reflects on the technological advancement. Am I correct, Ryan? It does, and uh, and that story will need to be updated as time goes by because, as you mentioned, China is developing um, hypersonic glide vehicles and and other you know missile platforms that are very difficult to detect the the truth though is that uh, if china were ever motivated to to launch missiles against the united states they already had the capacity to overwhelm america's missile defenses before they began developing these capabilities and so while it's troubling and uh and concerning that china is developing these these long-range strike capabilities it doesn't dramatically alter the picture that i've been looking at for for some time Interesting. Would you have knowledge as to whether or not the United States government is trying to offset that military capability that they have? For example, this hypersonic missile? Yeah, I think the United States is, the government is spending a lot of time and energy uh, looking at ways to defend uh, against, against these burgeoning capabilities, but also to strengthen our ability to deter China from ever feeling compelled to use them. Uh, So, we're watching, for example, uh, the United States strengthen its force posture in the Pacific. Uh, we're watching uh, the United States develop capabilities that can hold at risk uh, a lot of 
the the goals that China has. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, China still remains um, reliant on importing food and fuel to to feed its population and grow its economy. Uh, and a lot of that, those shipments go through the Strait of Malacca, the Indian Ocean, areas where the Chinese Navy doesn't have the capacity to protect sea lines of communication. And the United States Navy is present 365 days a year. So China has real strengths, but they also remain vulnerable in, in certain key respects. You no, know, I'd like you to correct my statement that I'm about to make if it's, if it's inaccurate. I see more um, kinship or likeness to China than I do with Russia. I, it's hard to find anything redeeming to say about Russia. I think the, the country's in so much trouble in so many uh, capacities that, you know, I, I just think that they have nowhere to go but up. I don't feel that way about China. I think China has forged their way into the 21st century. And as we're talking about, it, it sounds as if they're on par with other nations, you know, and, and the big nations, including ours. So I'm trying to wrap my arms around why China would gravitate towards a Putin as opposed to a United States government. That's one question. And the other question I'm going to ask you as a follow-up is um, an, an optic or perception of our country right now, our government. There's a lot of rhetoric in this country, Ryan, as you know, that's counterproductive. Um, there's a lot of division, a lot of polarization. It creates an optic of divide, which is, you know, it, you just have to put on the idiot box and I'm sure that they watch the same thing we watch over there if it's CNN or Fox or whomever. So I, I'd like you to just brush up against my first comment about I would say we want to butt up with us because we're more like them than Russia is. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, Lou, I think that you're you're on to something here. You know, for for the Don't give me too much latter- power, Ryan, okay? Please. I'm not ready for it today, but go ahead. <laughs> The, the latter part of the Cold War, the Chinese made exactly the calculation that you're describing, that uh, their ability to achieve their objectives and their goals would be bettered by being closer to the United States than by the Soviet Union. And it wasn't until sort of, uh, you know, the 2008 time period that uh, that that China began to, to shift uh, more so in the direction of Moscow. And I think that you know, Putin has done a lot of work to try to cultivate uh, this shift uh, amongst the Chinese leadership. It's driven in part by shared frustrations and resentments of the West. This this endemic fear that uh, China's leaders and Russia's leaders have that the United States is out to get them. That we have this ideological zeal to to undermine their systems. That uh, we're trying to foment color revolutions around China and Russia's periphery, and eventually have them spread into, into China and Russia. That's the story that Putin sells uh, when he's in Beijing. Um, but I, I think that that creates a fertile environment for both countries to begin to identify some shared interests that, that push the, the two countries forward. Um, but the more that, that Moscow and Beijing share opposition to Western actions and feel like they're being uh, cornered uh, by the West, the easier it is for them to act on on these common interests. But I would just caution against assuming that the China-Russia relationship is going to forever grow closer uh, for many of the reasons that you were just describing. Uh, By historical standards, the the China-Russia relationship is unnaturally close right now. It's very rare in, in the history of these two countries for them to be as close as they are today. It's in many ways a product of the, the personalities at the top. And the two leaders in, in Beijing and Moscow aren't going to be in power forever. It's also you know, a bit problematic for China to tie itself to the weakest other major power in the international system. You know, The United States gets to work closely with Europe, with Australia, with Japan, with India, with Canada, with others, the G7. China's stuck with Russia, uh, which is by all accounts a depreciating asset in the international system. Um, so uh, I think that there are people in Beijing who are aware of this, this risk. Um, and you know, the other factor is that China is benefiting by the, the existing international order. It's doing pretty well uh, in, in the current environment. And it has a lot to lose if the international system begins to erode or collapse Putin, on the other hand, is basically an arsonist of the international order. 
uh, he is out uh, to venge, uh, you know, wrongs that were were committed against the the Soviet Union and to sort of restore the the dignity and pride of the Russian people. And so they don't have a perfect alignment of interest between them. And that, you know, it's it's an important context to, to consider as we watch events unfold uh, relating to Ukraine today. And to your second question, Lou, I think it's an important one that I, I do think that leaders in Beijing believe what they say when they say that the East is rising and the West is declining and that time and momentum are on China's side in this great competition with the United States and the West. They see uh, in the United States a, a system that is proving incapable of compromise uh, that is sort of stuck in gridlock and, and partisan rancor. And uh, I think that they draw a lot of lessons from from what they watch. Now, I would just caution, though, that uh, that this isn't the first time that uh, the communist or Leninist leaders have overestimated their strength and underestimated the resilience and and sort of resolve of the United States and the West. Stalin did this, Brezhnev did this, Mao did this, and they all uh, sort of made miscalculations because they assumed that they were ascendant and that the United States and the West was was crumbling from within. So time will tell whether that pattern repeats itself. I'd still place my bets on the United States in this long-term competition, but we'll see. Yeah, uh, we're, we're going to take a quick break, Ryan, and I, and I want to come back and um, discuss with you what you think the perception of China is, for example, of the United States and the government, because if you listen to the rhetoric, we're just hacking each other down. And the other thing I want to speak to further is a mechanism that would integrate China into a broader conversation with the rest of Western Europe, etc. You know what I'm saying? Because that seems like the path of travel that will get us where we need to be. These this, China should more be like our partner as opposed to our adversary. And if you listen to the rhetoric, it sounds very adversarial. Guys, we're going to be right back. I have uh, Ryan Haas with me, um, brilliant young man, incredibly knowledgeable and interesting, and I would encourage everybody to read his book, which we're going to bring to you uh, by title again in one second. We'll be right back, guys. If you're looking for peace of mind, look no further than Global Elite for your safety. Global Elite Security Force is made up of active and former law enforcement agents. Their force has worked at the federal, state, and local level. They are dedicated to providing the most professional personal security and investigative services available in the private sector. With offices nationwide and globally, this footprint gives Global Elite the ability to coordinate protection and security anywhere in the world. Think of Global Elite Protection Services for special events, dignitaries, high-profile net worth individuals, and the entertainment industry security services. Offering drones, weapons detection, shot sporting, chem bio detection, executive protection surveillance, dignitary protection, threat assessment, private investigation, and cyber security. They are the experts in intelligence and private protection services. Go to globalelite.us.com. That's globalelite.us.com to engage global elite. Have you ever thought about doing your own podcast and found the process confusing and overwhelming? Well, let Studio Podcast Suites of Jacksonville make it easy for you. They have everything you need to record, produce, and distribute a professional-sounding podcast. Studio Podcast Suites is Jacksonville's only five-star rated professional podcast studio rental and podcast service company. Studio Podcast Suites provides two clean and comfortable state-of-the-art recording suites for both audio and video podcast recording. They offer a complete menu of podcast services, including editing, podcast art, hosting, video, consulting, and more. Studio Podcast Suites. Jacksonville's premier professional podcast studio recording and podcast service company. Book your studio today at studiopodcastsuites.com. That's studiopodcastsuites, S-U-I-T-E-S dot com. Studio Podcast Suites. Okay, guys, we're back. Uh, Ryan Haas is with us. He's the author of Stronger Adapting America's China strategy in an age of competitive interdependence. Please pick this book up. I'm going to pick it up myself. It's going to be an incredible read. Um, Ryan, something to me that's very important because comments are being made in our media, whether they're responsibly done, recklessly done, about the perceptive weakness of this administration and it possibly motivating um, 
perceived adversaries into undertaking actions. For example, let's be real specific. Uh, is, is China going to seize an opportunity to go after Taiwan because of a perceived weakness of this country? What's their, what's their optic of America? Besides the fact we're divided, unprecedented. Yeah, I think that the, the Chinese see the United States as a, a country that is, um, that is divided, that's weakening itself from within, uh, that is doing self-harm by uh, being so fixated on trying to counter every Chinese move everywhere in the world. Um, and they, they also, you know, just they think that their system of government and their economic model is better poised to meet the challenges of the 21st century than ours is. And so that's the bet they're making. And um, we'll see. I'm, I'm skeptical that, uh, that they've got this exactly right, but, uh, but they seem pretty committed to, to that point of view. That's interesting. Um, I just want to gloss over the Ukraine, which is really not the purpose of the conversation today, but my, my perception of the Ukraine, and, and I have a, I would say, I don't want to say an interesting background, but I've been around the block, Ryan, and I can usually tell when we have a problem. And I think we've got a problem right now with Putin, primarily because he is overcommitted and he's going to need to figure out a way to save face. Um, This posturing at this border cannot just systematically be withdrawn and just say, yeah, we were just out having fun for a day, stretching our legs. He's overcommitted himself. and, And, you know, interestingly enough, someone said to me, is there a way out? And I said, unfortunately, there is. You got to throw the Ukraine under the bus, tell Putin they're never going to become part of NATO, and that will then allow him to save face and say, we got everything we wanted, and now we can pull our troops. This is a very, very tenuous and dangerous situation. And I'm curious, even though it's not why we got on the phone today, or this, this Zoom, what's your take on this? Well, I think that... You know, the Chinese and the Russian narrative is that Russia is being backed into a corner by NATO expansion, that Russia needs to take actions to defend its sphere of influence and to guard itself against this encroachment by the West on their periphery, and that the United States needs to respect uh, Russia's security requirements in the process. The, The story that I hear from the United States and from European allies is that that's not right. This is about sovereignty and territorial integrity, about the idea that rules and not relative power should determine the outcomes to disputes. And uh, that if we go back to a might makes right world, we're just going to find ourselves, you know, in a Hobbesian jungle uh, that, that isn't going to serve anyone's interests. And so there's just a, I think, a philosophical division uh, between these two viewpoints, and it's going to be very hard to reconcile those. You know, what's interesting about this discussion with Russia and part of their argument, which lends itself to the Ukraine becoming NATO, uh, part of NATO, and then the potential of us um, installing mi- missile bases, for example, Ryan, it it, it kind of smells like the Cuban Missile Crisis a little bit if you go back in history. And I know you're too young for that one, but I was around for that one, even though I was very young. It resonated in our ears because of you know President Kennedy and and I happen to have liked him. I don't care what other people say. He was an interesting man. He was the embodiment of what America was at the time. But you know, and I'm just saying this not because I'm pro Russia, but if I was Russia, I wouldn't want the country that was once part of my country, who shares citizens and is contiguous to me, having the potential of installation of missile bases. I mean, that's just common sense. I mean. It's it's nothing to do with politics. I mean, it's just common sense. We didn't like it, so what would make anybody think they would like it? You know, is that not a legitimate point that Putin has? I mean, you know, maybe there's a way to negotiate negotiate our way out of this thing um, with a guarantee that we would never install missile bases right next to. I mean, I don't know how to to separate Russia from the Ukraine because in my mind, I hate to say it to you, it's all the same to me. I understand the sovereignty. I got all the rhetoric behind this thing, and I've got the, the, the politics. But at the end of the day, this was an attachment of Russia. It was, it was Russia. And, it, and it's evidenced by the fact of the amount of influence of the culture of Russia is in Ukraine and, and the citizenry. They're, they just kind of they're, – they're I mean, for my purposes, they almost look like the same damn country. And, and the other thing I find interesting is that, you know, we're, we're concerned about the Ukraine – 
and we gloss over the corruption issue, which I think is quite substantial. And another concern I have is, at the end of the day, why would Western European nations risk a conflict with Russia over a country that it half matters to them if they're part of Russia or a sovereign entity? You know, what, what do you think about what I just said to you? Well, I think it's a point of view that a lot of people in the United States hold. Um, I, I worry just at a more systematic level that uh, if we sort of leave it to big countries to determine which former uh, satellites or, or colonies that they should reclaim and control, uh, that we're going to find ourselves going down a dangerous path. And so the, the concern is that I have is a, is a broader concern uh, about the precedents that are being set and, and this idea that, uh, that countries can no longer be countries if larger countries decide that that should be the case. Absolutely. And I want to ask you one final question. What do you think China's posture is towards what's going on in the Ukraine? Are they supportive of Russia? Are they independent, somewhat independent thinking, want to stay out of the fray? And, and we're going to wrap after this answer, but I, I'm curious to know what you think China's uh, perception or their commitment is to this undertaking by Putin. Well, at this moment, I think the Chinese are a bit conflicted. On one hand, having the United States and the West distracted by events in Ukraine is good for them. Uh, it draws attention away from the bullseye on Beijing's back and puts it on someone else for a while. And it, it will, you know, it'll consume the United States. Uh, on the other hand, you know, this sort of runs up against China's core principles of respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, uh, which is something that is uh, central to their professed uh, foreign policy. And uh, it, it runs the risk of uh, leading to spikes in oil prices, which isn't good for China, uh, the world's leading oil importing nation, uh, and just broader global volatility, which is not something that China is looking for at the moment. So I, I think that they're a bit conflicted trying to find their way forward. They would like uh, to, to remain supportive of and, and in close uh, cooperation with Russia on, on the world stage. But in this specific instance, I think that, uh, that Putin is taking actions that, uh, that many in Beijing perceive to be rather reckless. Yeah, I, I think this is a very, very potentially dangerous situation, especially with someone like Putin, who we've come to understand by background and his desire to reinvent the, United, the uh, USSR. Guys, we're going to wrap for today. This has been an incredibly interesting conversation with Ryan Haas. I just want to remind everyone, he's published the book, Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy into an Age of Competitive Interdependence. I would, I would suggest that you look this up. Is there anything you want to add as to how people can find you, Ryan? Or No, I just, Lou, it's been very kind of you to plug my book so many times. I appreciate it. The least uh, we could do. It's the least we could do, Ryan, especially for the amount of information that you've been able to, to, to put forth. Um, guys, this is Lou Palumbo. This has been Between the Lines, and this has been one hell of a conversation. And I'm hoping that Ryan is gracious enough to make time for us again because this isn't the end of the conversation. 